having said that, good morning, everyone, and Merry Christmas to everybody. It's good to see everyone this morning. <laughs> um, so, like I said, we are going to uh, dive back into question 36. Uh, last week, we finished uh, looking at the divinity side, the divi- uh, divine nature of Christ. Uh, this morning, we are going to move into looking at his human nature. Uh, but before we do that, let me open us up in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the rain that you have uh, poured out on our land. Uh, it is always much appreciated and needed here in um, the state of Texas. So we are thankful for that. We're thankful for this day of Christmas Eve, uh, tomorrow where we will celebrate uh, the birth of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we are thankful that um, this day we can celebrate in worship of you, our Lord, our risen King, who has died and saved his people, and you've called us to yourself. And so today, Lord, we pray that you would be with us in this Sunday school hour through your spirit, that you would open our hearts to understand you better uh, as we learn, Lord Jesus, about uh, your human nature and what all that entails. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so looking at question 36 again, we are looking and studying uh, the humanity, the human side of Christ. Uh, The catechism says that in the fullness of time, he became man. And this is the second half, right, of what I mentioned before, that Jesus alone is qualified to be our perfect mediator because of his eternal deity and his true humanity. Okay, so let's take this uh, time to study that for a minute because, again, um, you know, we say this all the time, right, as if it's commonplace without thinking of the implications of that, right? Yeah, God humbled himself and became one of his creatures. Well, wait, what? That, I mean, are we talking about the same God, right? Yes, we are. So let's start with that first phrase, that in the fullness of time. What do the divines mean by that? Well, they mean what Scripture means, right? Uh, turn back in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Let's look at verse 9. Let's start at verse 9. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set uh, forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So God has made known the mystery of his will, right? Some revelation that was previously hidden, Or maybe it was made known, but only vaguely understood, right? And now, that mystery, his will, God's plan for redemption, has has at last been made known in the Messiah, the only perfect mediator, Jesus Christ, right? He is the one who will, verse 10, unite all things in him. And the Father has done this. He has has sent his Son to come in the flesh in the fullness of time, Ephesians 1.10, or in other words, when the time was right, okay? the time for the fulfillment of God's plan. And God chose this particular moment in time to send his son that he might unite all things in him in heaven and on earth. And this phrase at the end of verse 10 is, I would say, arguably the kind of the central theme of the, the whole passage there um, in Ephesians uh, 1. At this moment in time, God has altered and affected cosmic 
reconciliation in Christ. The work of Christ on the cross is the central axis for the history of creation, whether you're in heaven or on earth. Because at the cross, at this moment in time, Christ has redeemed his people and silenced all the evil forces, namely death itself, right, the last great enemy. And in order to do that, he had to become man. And for this side of the doctrine, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Now, this passage seems to, I don't know, give people fits for some reason. I'm not, I'm not really sure why. Hopefully I can clarify it for you. Let's start in verse 5. We're going to look at Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Okay. Um, you know what? Let me, I'm just going to read, I'm going to read this whole one here. Okay. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this, in, uh, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, let's just walk through this text. Okay, <clears throat> Starting in verse 6, we need to understand as we read this verse, okay, we're talking about Jesus' pre-incarnate status. Okay, this is referring to the pre-existent Christ. Okay, he, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, was there with the Father before his birth. And that'll be important in a minute as we look at the rest of the text. Okay, what does Paul mean by in the form of God? And morphetheon for you Greek people out there. Okay, you Greek students. Now, we actually do need to talk a little Greek here for a minute. Um, the text does not say en theon. Okay, schema, which also means form, denotes instability, okay, or changeableness. Paul uses this form of the word in 1 Corinthians 7.31, for example, for the present form or schema is passing away. Here in our passage, in Philippians, we have morphe, okay? Morphe denotes the inner being, okay, as it actually and concretely realizes itself, in the individual, okay? It implies the essential attributes used elsewhere of the divinity of the Son. So, actually, in referring to this word, B.B. Warfield, he says this, like this, it highlights the intrinsic deity of the phrase, okay? En morphetheon, in the form of God, is the highest way that Paul can say that Jesus has all the divine attributes. He is God, Okay? So the word form here expresses the summarizing qualities that, that makes a thing what it is. Okay? Jesus is, Hebrews 1.3, the exact imprint of the Father's nature. Colossians 1.15, he's the visible expression of God's invisible glory. Okay? And yet, the end of verse 6 says, he did not count equality with God 
a thing to be grasped. Make no mistake, Christ is equal with God because he is God. He's the son of God. Yet remarkably, Christ did not believe having this right of equality with God as something that he should hold on to. It was not something he should keep and exploit for his own benefit or advantage. Instead, this form of God is contrasted with the form of a servant, which we just read in Philippians 2.7, right? And that's what he takes. He takes on the form of a servant. In humility, Philippians 2.3, he counted the interests of others more significant than himself. And so we see in verse 7, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now, Here's another one that makes people all squirrely, right? He emptied himself. What does that mean? Here's what Paul is not saying. That Jesus temporarily relinquishes his divine attributes. Okay? That's called kenosis theory. And it's heresy. Okay? It's this idea of of self-emptying. Okay? That is not what Paul's teaching and that is not in accord with what the early church believed. Okay, it's not orthodox. This line of thinking is particularly problematic uh, because it violates the doctrine of the Trinity. It violates the hypostatic union. It makes uh, the incarnation temporary. It violates the value of Christ's mediating ministry. I mean, there's a lot of problems with it. Um, also, Paul is not saying that Jesus becomes less than God or that he gives up some of his divine attributes. Okay? He's not commenting on Jesus' earthly divine omnipotence or omniscience. Okay? He's not saying that Jesus gave up being and morphetheon in the form of God as we rightly understand it. Okay? So then what is Paul saying? What does this mean? Well, for this, got to go back to the Greek a little bit. I know, most of you are annoyed. Uh, some of you are happy, and that yes, that makes you a nerd. But the root word here is kanao. Okay? means meaning to pour out or to empty. Okay? It can also be understood metaphorically to, to give up status and privilege. Okay? And that's more of what we got going on here. Paul is stressing that Christ, who had all the privileges that were rightly his as king of the universe, he gave them up. And he gave them up to be an ordinary Jewish baby bound for a cross. In other words, Jesus made his divinity of no account. He made no big deal of it. So the emptying is somewhat of a play on words. Emptying is not really taken literally. And verse 7 tells us how Jesus made himself of no reputation. The text actually helps us understand this, right? He empties himself by taking on the form of a servant. And that's an important note because there's nothing mentioned here of Jesus abandoning his divine attributes in any way. Right? Verse 7, but he takes on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus had every right to stay in his position of power and glory, right? Comfortable within the Godhead. Yet in his love, he moves to a position of weakness for our sake, for the sake of sinful mankind. And I like how 2 Corinthians 8 9 says it. Yet for our sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus emptying himself consisted in his becoming man, not in giving up any part of his true deity. Okay? 
And if we look at verse 8, we see the summation of Christ's true humanity, right? And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' whole life is one of humiliation and obedience, even to the point of death. And by the way, when we talk about Christ's humiliation, right, this, th- this is what we mean. That th- There's actually a, a whole catechism question dedicated to it, but it's not that Jesus was embarrassed, right? Rather, to, that he humbled himself, right, by becoming human. He takes on a lesser form intentionally for the sake of his people, for our sake, which requires humility as God. He enters this broken world in human form, but he takes it even further, right? The text says he becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And you need to understand the crucifixion was not a convenient way of executing prisoners, right? It was designated to represent ultimate shame and indignity, right? It was a public statement by Rome that the one being crucified was beyond contempt. There were a lot more convenient ways to kill people. So the excruciating physical pain was exacerbated by the degradation and the humiliation. And for our Lord, it was even worse, right? Because he was stripped naked before he was hung on the cross. And you can see that in John 19, 23, right? The soldiers strip him of his garments and they cast lots. The other gospel accounts will verify that. So there's nothing pleasant about our Lord's death. No other form of death, no matter how prolonged, physically agonizing, could match crucifixion. Why? Because crucifixion was an absolute destruction of the person's body, their dignity, their spirit. Everything was just broken from the inside out. This was the form that our God took and willingly subjected himself to. It was the ultimate counterpoint to the divine majesty of the pre-existent Christ. And therefore, it was the ultimate expression of obedience to the Father. So the only way any of this happens is for Christ to take on human form. Part of Christ becoming man was for us, no doubt, right? But another big part of it was for God's own glory. Absolutely. Now, verses 9 through 11 focus on the fruit of Christ's humiliation, uh, that being his exaltation and glory. He has a name bestowed upon him, right? Kyrios, Lord, capital L, referring only to Yahweh. Uh, The purpose is that uh, at this name, at the feet of King Jesus, every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord, right? He is God. And we'll look more at this when we study Christ's exaltation. Um, Now... For at this point, the confession concludes the answer with, I think, some important last-minute details about our mediator. <clears throat> Jesus continues to be God and man in two distinct natures, one person, and this will last forever. Now, that's some important Christological and Trinitarian uh, doctrine right there. A lot of that packed, packed into just a few words. So let's start with our main header there. Christ continues to be both God and man. How do we know that? Well, flip over to Acts. And uh, this uh, is our catechism's proof text for this one, actually. Uh, Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. 
Acts 1, verse 9, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, take notice of verse 9 in the cloud there. And we've studied this before, right? Elsewhere in scripture, a cloud is often associated with the manifestation of God's presence, right? A theophany is the proper term. And many assert, and, and I agree, that this is no ordinary cloud or rain cloud that we're talking about here, right? This is, this is the cloud of glory that surrounds the very presence of God. Secondly, in verse 9, we see that Jesus is indeed lifted up into heaven. The visible ascension of Jesus shows us that he retains his physical body. Right now, Jesus is physically seated at the right hand of God the Father. He, he's physically there. That's where Jesus is right now. He's sitting on the throne of power with sovereign rule over heaven and earth. There's something else we need to think about, right? When Jesus died on the cross, did God die? You better say no, right? Remember, thank you, very good. (laughs) Remember, two distinct natures, right? Plus, can God die? No, right? So when we put all this together, right, coupled with the promise in verse 11 that he will return in bodily form, Right when he comes back to rapture us, ah, just checking, just kidding. Just want to make sure you're still paying attention. Right, no rapture. <clears throat> we are left to believe that the Son of God not only took on human nature upon Himself, but that He will remain both fully God and fully man forever. Okay, so this is our only perfect mediator of the covenant of grace. Okay, and the reason why He is our mediator is because of the hypostatic union. Now. <clears throat> At this point, and everything we talked about last week, right, I just gave you the long, detailed version of the hypostatic union. You know how math teachers will always teach you the long, complicated way to do a math problem first? Um, at least mine did, all the time. And then while you're sitting there trying to, you know, pull your hair out, um, they go, oh, by the way, there's a much shorter and easier way to do that. Uh, let, let me show you how to do that. Uh, yeah, and the whole time you're thinking, well, why didn't you just do that in the first place? Um, mostly because they like pain. Um, uh, well, uh, I can show you the shorter version of the hypostatic union right now. And here's, here's, here's the shorter elevator pitch for understanding the hypostatic union. There's some, I think, some buzzwords that will help be helpful uh, for you to remember. When it comes to understanding the hypostatic union, I usually go to Colossians 2.9. It's really quick, and it pretty much packs it all in there. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Okay, I mean, Paul can't really say it any more succinctly than that. Okay, as we said, Jesus is fully God and fully man, right? 100% God, 100% man. And no, that's not a math problem. You don't get 200%, right? So don't try to make it one. One person, two natures. He's not a hybrid of two natures. That's heresy. We're going to talk about that in a minute, okay? His nature cannot be mixed or blended, nor separated or divided. Say that one more time. It can't be mixed or blended, or separated or divided. Okay, or to say it another way, chapter 8 of the Confession says his divine nature and human nature are united without conversion, composition, or confusion. Maybe the alliteration helps. 
They're united without conversion, composition, or confusion. Okay? Jesus' human nature is a true human nature, even though it was joined to a divine nature. And we judge our human nature by his perfect human nature. Jesus was made in the likeness of our flesh and the weakness that comes with finitude. Jesus assumed human nature, but without sin. Right? And that's an important qualifier. And there's, there's two things we have to say. He is wholly like us and taking on a human nature. He's unlike us in living in perfect obedience unto the Father and being without sin. He condemns sin in his human nature, and that's a salvific thing. Uh, it's in Jesus' nature uh, that we have fellowship with God. In Christ's incarnation, he elevates our humanity. The hypostatic union illustrates both a humiliation and exaltation. So, that rounds out the hypostatic union and the actual catechism answer. What I'd like to do now is look at kind of a tangential topic, and I think, I think y'all like this, I think it's helpful here. I want to look at some early Christological heresies. We won't spend too much time here, I just want to make you aware of them and show you that some are still alive and well today in modern false religions. I think it's important that you are at least aware of them, because uh, the early church spent a lot of years combating these heresies. Uh, we don't need to reinvent the wheel here, okay? They spent countless careful time crafting our creeds and our confessions, um, some of these definitions, that, um, that we can have some Reformed Catholicity here, okay? And, and when I say Reformed Catholicity, uh, I, I mean that we with one voice might confess the truth um, of these important doctrines that we find in Scripture. Okay, so let's take a look at these heresies, and keep in mind, these are just Christological heresies that we're looking at. There's a laundry list of others that are related to the Trinity, okay? So first up to bat is Arianism, and this is probably the biggest one in our list, um, the one that got the most attention people jumped on the bandwagon with. This heresy was first developed um, in the late 1st, early 2nd century by the Christian Presbyter uh, Presbytery Arius, which, by the way, if uh, you develop a heresy so bad in the church, uh, they name it after you. Um, so, yeah. <clears throat> Arianism says that Jesus is fully human, but not fully God. Okay? Uh, he's the highest created being, even above the angels, but he's still not God. Arianism really clings on to that begotten language, okay? and therefore Jesus was not co-eternal with God the Father. Okay, as such, to worship the creature Jesus, or Christ, is idolatry. Okay? A good modern version of this, um, is a form of it, it would be Jehovah's Witnesses. Hey, uh, they believe God the Father created Jesus, um, and that he is only a God, little g. Hey, Jesus had to become divine, unlike the Father who was always divine, and he is big God, big G. Second, we have Apollinarianism, named after, you guessed it, Apollinarius. Uh, this heresy reared its head in the 4th century and denied the full humanity and perfection of Christ. We've talked about this before, if you remember. We, have, we affirm the impeccability of Christ, right? That's the Orthodox Christian teaching that means that uh, not only did Jesus not sin, but that he was incapable of sinning, very important. Apollinarianism said... Jesus' two natures could not coexist in the same person, okay? As a result, since Jesus was human, not only could he have sinned, he must have sinned, 
at some point. And a sinful nature cannot coexist with a divine nature. So, to overcome this perceived problem, they say that the, the logos of God came upon Jesus to replace his human mind or rational nature with God's. Okay? Consequently, this overpowered the sinful nature remnant in Jesus' humanity. Essentially, they, they deny his human nature and they divide Jesus into body, soul, and logos, which is the Greek for word. Okay? <clears throat> this, this one can be a little tricky to wrap your head around, um, but the biggest thing you need to remember here is that Apollinarianism denies the hypostatic union. It says Christ is capable of sin, and it replaces his human mind with the logos to, to compensate for what they think is a sin, the sin problem. Okay. Third, you have doceticism. This one swings the pendulum the other way and says, guys, the problem isn't Jesus' deity, it's his humanity. Okay? They absolutely affirm that Jesus was God. The problem was that they denied his humanity. <clears throat> it's the belief that Jesus only seemed to be human. Uh, his human form was, was just an illusion of sorts. Okay? They looked at passages like the word became flesh in John 1.1, and they argued that whether that was fig figurative or literal language. Well, they, of course, ended up on the wrong conclusion of that text, and they denied Christ's true humanity. This one didn't really gain as much traction as the others. Um, next up, you have Nestorianism. Uh, so in 400 AD, the, the Christian theologian Nestorius, I'm telling you guys, it, it, you want to get your name in the books in the wrong way, just come up with a really bad heresy. Uh, they'll never let you or the rest of the church forget it. Um, anyway, Nestorius starts telling everyone that Christ existed in two persons sharing one body. Yeah, two persons, one body. So according to that, right, you'd have four members of the Godhead. Um, yeah, that won't work. Um, so you could see how that would be pretty problematic. Uh, again, I don't think that one really gained much traction. Fifth, and I, I always have trouble saying this one, Eutychianism. Eutychianism. So we've done everything else to Christ's persons and natures up to this point. The only thing left to do is blend them. And that's exactly what this heresy does. Uh, around 400 AD, Eutychius says that in the person of Jesus Christ, the divine nature and human nature blend together and they make something new. So much so that it becomes a third nature, like a hybrid form. Uh, this would be like taking two parts of a hydrogen atom, right? One part oxygen, so you got two different gases, but when you put them together, you get water, right? And it becomes a liquid. That's essentially what they're saying happens here. Jehovah's Witnesses also kind of fall into this camp because they say Jesus is some kind of a new creature, uh, some kind of an in-between of God and man. He's not truly man, but he's also not truly God either. Um, yeah, that's false. So that's, that's all of the Christological heresies that developed in the early church. Now, throughout all this time, come the ecumenical councils and the orthodox creeds that we affirm and confess to oppose these heresies. Let's go through them real quick. First up, you got the Nicene Creed, right? 325 AD, it affirmed that Jesus is truly God. And God is one in essence, three in person, right? The deity of Christ is the primary issue here. 
and it was written in defense against Arianism. And if you think about it, right, Arianism can't be right because only God can save humanity. So if Jesus isn't God, he's, he saved no one, right? Arianism makes salvation impossible. And by the way, in case any of you are wondering, the Apostles' Creed is, is basically just a shorter version of the Nicene Creed that was written, came around in the later 5th century, okay? Second, Con uh, Council of Constantinople, it's 381 AD. Um, here they affirm that Jesus was perfectly man. This was declared against the rise of Apollinarianism. Uh, third, we have the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD. This was a council of Christian bishops that met in Ephesus and affirmed that Jesus was one person. This uh, created unity against Nestorianism. Uh, fourth, we have the Chalcedonian Definition, which, if you've never read it, is fantastic. Um, it, it came in 451 AD. Uh, you might hear it called the Chalcedonian Definition or the Chalcedonian Creed. Same thing. It was drafted by the church, and it was written to clearly outline the hypostatic union. It affirms that Jesus is one person with two natures. Uh, those natures cannot be blended or mixed or separated or divided. Okay? And each nature retains its own attributes. Very important. Number five, we have the Council of Constantinople in 681 AD. There they affirm that Jesus had a human will as well as a divine will. And these wills were separate and distinct. In other words, you can't blend them and make something new, right? This council was used to speak against Eutychianism. Last up, we have the uh, Athanasian Creed. And this was the last Orthodox Creed to be written. It came around in the early 6th century. Uh, now, this creed is not specifically focused on Christology. It's actually more of a Trinitarian creed. Um, you, I'm sure you guys know it well. It's that one that after we read it in morning worship, you need to take a drink of water and catch your breath. Um, it's that really long one. Uh, but it's important, right? It's, it's a good creed, uh, it, and it, it does relate to Christ because it doesn't explicitly state, um, I'm sorry, it does explicitly state the, uh, the equality um, and, and the one essence that exists within the Godhead. Okay, that wraps up question 36. I know this was some pretty heavy stuff, right, talking about all the, the hype stack union and everything, uh, but it's a good question. It's a doctrine that we need to know um, and ground ourselves in and profess um, hopefully for the most part, this was just a refresher for a lot of you guys. Um, does anybody have any questions before we move into, uh, question 37? Yeah. And all the heresies, how do they get around salvation? That's a good question. I don't know. That's why the church rebutted with all those creeds and confessions. Um, like because... Yeah, and most of these most of these came from the churches, so they were they were Christians, and um, yeah, I had a, I had a professor once. Uh, this was helpful for me. He said that the difference between a heresy and just bad theology, right, is if if you come up and say, "Hey, I think Jesus is fully God, but he's not fully man," right? You say that one time, and I correct you, and I show you the scripture, and we walk through it, and you go, "Oh, yeah, of course, right? That's just bad theology." But if I correct you, and then you just keep teaching that, and you keep believing it, now you're a heretic. Now you're spouting heresy, right? So, yeah, how they came up with those things, I don't know. Um, and what, what, yeah, because those are all very important salvific issues. <clears throat> Any more questions? Cool. Let's move into question 37. 
All right. Hopefully you all have handouts in front of you. I'm going to read the question. Um, and then uh, we'll uh, answer together. How did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, and born of her, yet without sin. So now that we've studied and understand the hypostatic union, the divines want to answer how something like this could even happen, right? How, how this happened in the first place. But of course, the scriptures don't remain silent on that. In fact, the virgin birth is a rather important doctrine in Orthodox Christianity. Our very salvation hinges on it, in fact. And so that's the theme of today's question, how providential that we land on this particular question on, uh, on Christmas Eve. And no, I did not plan this. We're talking about the virgin birth. Um, so, this question starts out by saying that the Son of God became man. And that's, that's nothing new for us, right? We explore that in detail, how the Word of God became flesh, dwelt among us, John 1.14. Or we can say that the Word of God tabernacled, right, among us in human form. And the divines tell us how he did that in our answer. This question is going to be all about looking at the mechanics of the virgin birth, right? We're going to get under the hood. How did the second person of the Godhead become a man? Well, he did it by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. So let's look at each of these, and we'll start with the first, a true body. Turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 2. <coughs> All right, starting in verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay, now there's a whole sermon worth of great things to say about this text. Um, and this passage is actually going to be really important when we look at question 39 uh, on why Jesus had to be made man. Um, and again, when we look at his role as a priest, so I, I don't want to speak to those questions specifically. Again, we're, we're kind of, like I said, taking a peek under the hood, um, as it were, to, to how the Son of God became man. Well, step one is a true body, right? Hebrews 2.14 says, since we're flesh and blood, he's going to be flesh and blood. In his physical form, Jesus was comprised of all the same things, right? Verse 17 says he was made like us in every respect. This part I mean, it really isn't that complicated, right? When the divines say Jesus had a true body, they mean that he possessed the same kind of physical body that we do, uh, with all of its strengths and all of its limitations, right? This point is stressed because of doceticism, 
right? Which, if you remember, is the heresy that said Jesus is truly God, but not truly man. Jesus only seemed to have a physical body. God can't really have a human body. And, you know, as I was writing these notes, I actually found a church that does still subscribe to that kind of teaching. Um, there's, there are Coptic churches in parts of Africa uh, that still believe this stuff. Now, don't ask me about the details of their doctrine because I have no idea. But I do know that in certain parts of Africa, these churches uh, will affirm the deity of Christ and reject his humanity. Uh, and when you look at question 39, um, which we will, we'll see how that's very problematic. Okay? Now, the second part of this is that Jesus had a reasonable soul. What does that mean? Listen to Matthew uh, 26, verse 38. Uh, and just for a little context, right? Jesus is about to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, and he looks at Peter and his two other disciples. And he says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. <clears throat> Remain here and watch with me. And again, this, the concept here really I don't think is that difficult, right? Just as we have a soul... So also Christ has a human soul. Now, there were some in the early church that wanted to say Jesus had a true body, but not a reasonable soul. The idea was that his divine nature took the place of the soul that existed within the body. Now, to my knowledge, this heresy didn't really gain uh, much traction. And if it had a name, honestly, I don't know what it was. Regardless, the teaching is wrong. Now, I want you to notice something here in Matthew. Okay, Like us... Christ's soul becomes deeply troubled. He experiences deep emotional pain, turmoil. Um, he knows what's coming, and it wears him down in a very painful and distressing way. Even unto death, he says. And I think some of our souls have experienced that kind of darkness before. Uh, felt bereft of, of light, hope. And like Jesus, we, we pray to our Heavenly Father in those moments, right? We surround ourselves with believers, right? He says, remain here and watch with me. We know that the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak a lot of times. Christian, be, be reminded today, especially today, right? As we, we move into, to celebrate the, the Christmas season, right? There is, there's hope in the incarnate Son of God, the victorious Christ, there's peace to be found in his name. There's comfort for your soul in the one who became like us in every way. And there's forgiveness for your sins in the one who took on the wrath of God and was forsaken by his father so that you wouldn't have to be. You know, I know for some that the holidays can be hard. For some, everyday life can be a struggle. But no matter your struggle... We have a Savior who became like us, body and soul, that he might reconcile us unto God, comfort his people, and deliver us unto glory. He knows what it is to hunger, to thirst, to feel pain. He knows what it is to grieve, to feel sorrow. When you want to remember that your God loves you, and that he experienced what you do, what it means to struggle as a human being? Look to the cross. Jesus came into this world with a true body and a reasonable soul. And he left the same way, right? And he's going to come back the same way. Now, let's keep investigating the how aspect of this. 
The Catechism says Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So let's get a little uh, scripture proof for this. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke 1. Start in verse 26. <clears throat> Let me see something before I do that. Okay, yeah. All right. Luke 1, beginning in 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Okay, now, admittedly, the, the miracle aspect of this is quite astounding, and, and sometimes hard for people to wrap their heads around, and, and we're going to talk about that later on, um, how, how you can discuss miracles and understand miracles with people. But simply understanding on the surface level what's happening here is really not that difficult, right? Take notice of a couple things. Verse 27, Mary's virginity is noted twice in one verse. This is meant to do two things. Highlight the power of God in what's about to happen here, okay? And describes and it describes, number two, Mary's state both before and during the pregnancy, okay? And we're going to talk about that more as well. In verses 30 and 31, some are going to argue that this, and, and this mostly comes from Rome, uh, that Mary cooperated with God's grace, okay? Do you see that anywhere in our passage, in anything that we read, okay? No. You don't. That's a very Arminian way of thinking. In fact, we see quite the opposite in verses 30 and 31, right? Gabriel tells Mary, in accordance with God's will, verse 30, you found favor with God. Verse 31, you will conceive and you will call his name Jesus. Hey, what we don't see is, well, you know, Mary, if you feel like it, um, this, this is going to happen. Or Mary saying, well, you know, let me, let me think and pray on this a little bit. Um, yeah, okay, that sounds good to me. No. (laughs) But she does ask a question in verse 34, right? And it is a question from faith. Um, How will this be since I am a virgin? Now, how do we know that this is from faith? Well, number one, she's found favor with God. Number two, she's not rebuked, which we see other people in scriptures rebuked. Um, But rather, she's given a gentle answer by Gabriel. Okay? And we need to look at that. How does... How does the Virgin Mary conceive? Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Okay, yeah, but, well, wait, I, I don't get that. What, 
What, what does that mean? That's okay. You don't have to understand all the specifics of, or the logistics of how God did that. Okay? Um, here's what you do need to know and believe. The Holy Spirit performs a great miracle so that the Virgin Mary will become pregnant without having sex with her husband. Okay? And that means Jesus derives his holiness from God, not Mary. Okay? Because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, how does Mary figure into all this? Well, exactly as you might expect. She's the other side of the equation, right? The divines say that Jesus was of her substance. What do they mean by that? Well, just as Jesus is one substance with his Father, right, in his divine nature, he's of the same nature or essence, so too Jesus is of the same substance of his mother in his human nature. Everything that makes Mary human makes Jesus human. This ties right back to what we talked about before, right? Jesus' true body and his reasonable soul. The only qualifier to this, of course, is that Jesus was without sin. And the Catechism mentions that at the end of the answer, right? And we got a nice proof text for that, Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, the Answer also mentions that Jesus was born of her. In other words, Mary underwent a natural birth, right? As a mother, Mary was responsible for Jesus at conception onward. She cared for him as God knit him together in her womb. She gave birth to him and underwent the pains of labor. And she raised him as a faithful Jewish child who feared the Lord. Uh, for Jesus, uh, according to Galatians 4.4, was born under the law. Okay? And again, the importance of this is the, the, the why will become clear in, in future questions. Okay? Right now we're just kind of looking at the how. Um, and it, I, I think that it's pretty straightforward. That actually wraps up the question itself. Um, this one, like I said, honestly, I think it was pretty simple, pretty straightforward. I did want to take some time, however, and talk about some related topics uh, the first of which is going to be uh, how our doctrine of the virgin birth compares to others who profess Christ. So we're going to look at some other faiths and talk about those who say, yeah, we believe in Jesus. Do you, though? Um, so we'll look at that, um, and then I want to look at um, an apologetic response to miracles as well. But we're going to stop there for today. Does anyone have any questions on any of stuff we went over at this point? Yes, sweetie. What's your question? Why don't you ask me later? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> any more? Any other questions? Yeah. Okay. Seeing no questions, comments, gripes, complaints, I'm going to close us in prayer. Okay. <clears throat> Our good and gracious Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. 
this time to gather as your people. We thank you for your Son, who you have sent to live and to die for us, who is indeed truly God and truly man. And uh, we thank you for this great truth and important doctrine, who, which apart from it, uh, we would not have salvation. Um, for Lord Jesus, you did indeed come to live and to die for us, and you have redeemed us. And we confess our sins to you, and we are thankful that you have been raised for our justification, and you sit at the right hand of the Father and make intercession for us. Please be with us uh, this hour as we fellowship and come into your presence to worship, may be pleasing in your sight. We pray that uh, you'd be with Pastor Miller, Holy Spirit, that he would preach boldly and proclaim your truth, and that our hearts would be open to receive it. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> 